Well, hello, people. I trust you are there on the other side of the camera and uh, really looking forward to having some of you in the room from next week, God willing. How do you read the Gospels? I was asked that question just this week uh, by someone who came along to our life series, which we put on for people to check out the things of Jesus, the Bible, as you just heard before. The question, how do you read the Gospels? Now, the question wasn't expecting the answer, well, one word after the other, you know, left to right, down the page, just as Isaac and Jackie did for us then. It was more, how am I supposed to understand the Gospels? When I pick it up and read it, what, what am I looking for, especially since I'm 2,000 years removed from the events that are being described and the culture seems so different? How do I read it? How am I supposed to understand it? Well, the answer is, according to the author's purpose who first wrote it. We're nearing the end of Matthew's Gospel and uh, we've been in it for some time, over a few years actually. Let's remember how he begins. The very first words he writes are, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, Matthew tells you essentially why he's writing, because he's concerned that we would understand who Jesus is. He's consumed with the identity of Jesus as he writes his gospel. In fact, all the gospels are. And so the big thing that we're looking for as we come to the gospels is, what is it saying about who Jesus is? Two things then flow from that. And that is, what is this telling me about what God is like? And what is this saying about what God wants for his people? You can run through those three key questions as you come to any part of the Gospels. And I want to do that with us this morning in this chapter. What does it say about who Jesus is? What does it say about what God is like and what he wants for his people? So firstly, <clears throat> who is Jesus as we come to chapter 3? Well, <clears throat> recalling the context helps us as we consider his identity. Uh, remember, as you've been um, tracking through with us, he's arrived in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people, of God's people, the place where the Jewish power brokers lived, the religious leaders, uh, who'd given Jesus anything but a warm welcome. They've been peppering him with challenges over the last couple of chapters around his authority around the issue of politics and theology and law. And instead of these arguments being the silver bullet that they thought would bring Jesus down, he, he's dodged, he's evaded, he's set right. In fact, he's turned the tables to show them to be fools. Jesus has been on the receiving end of an attack, a verbal attack. But now, come 23, the tables are turned. It's Jesus who drives the agenda. He's got the microphone. And he's making crystal clear who he thinks he is. This is not a light and breezy part of the Bible. This is very confronting. Seven times Jesus pronounces woes on the religious leaders. Now a woe is essentially the opposite to blessing. Instead of being under God's favour, it's to be under his condemnation. Now, this is not a personal blow-up by Jesus, as though he's lost the plot and just gone on a rant. I'll show you why in a second. 
but rather this is the handing down of a divine judicial pronouncement on a group of people who have been weighed and found guilty. Jesus comes as God's divine judge. Now, what's going on here with Jesus? Because if you've been reading through his gospel, didn't he back in chapter 5 teach that we should love our enemies and pray for them? And yet here, he is taking it to them and condemning them. Back in chapter 7, he taught us not to judge or we too will be judged. But here, he hands down the most chilling judgments imaginable, calling these people children of hell. Dead, rotting corpses, snakes, brood of vipers. What's going on with Jesus? Is he a hypocrite? Does he preach one thing but practice another? No. Three things. Number one, don't read the Gospels superficially. You can't just kind of skim across the surface without taking time to think, to how do these pieces hold together and dive deeper? See, in the case of chapter 7, where he teaches not to judge, or you too will be judged, just 14 verses later, he says, watch out for false prophets who will come among you. How are you supposed to do that, to watch out for false prophets, unless you make judgments? A more careful reading makes clear that he's not warning against ever making judgments, but against judgmentalism and against superficial judgments. Secondly, though, Jesus does pray for his enemies. He prays for them from the cross as they execute him. And then the book of Acts that we have in the New Testament shows that God answers that prayer with many of these Jews who killed him turning to follow Jesus as Messiah. But the third thing to say as to why Jesus is not a hypocrite is that he, he's not the same as us, his followers. Yes, he was fully man, God, fully man. And yet he was no mere man, no ordinary man. He was the unique son of God whose prerogative, in fact, whose duty it was to bring God's judgment. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the judge of the universe, of every man, woman and child, of every power and principality. You come to him in this chapter and you are struck, the judge of the universe has walked among us. This is the first thing we see about Jesus' identity. He is God's divine judge. Here's the second thing because there's more. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. This is why we know that Jesus isn't just flying off the handle under pressure. He pronounces this judgment, serious and sobering as it is, with a broken heart. Why? Because he had come to save these people from hell. To bring them from being under God's judgment to being into his kingdom. But they were not willing. If you know your Bible well, then you can't help but think of Ezekiel 18, some 800 years before Jesus. When the Lord God says, why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. 
Who is this on the pages of Matthew 23? This is the God of the Old Testament who has come to bring judgment, but who has come to save, to gather people, gather sinners back to himself. And this, as we just begin here and consider who Jesus is in this part of the Bible, this is a warning against us having a one-dimensional view of Jesus rather than taking him for who he actually is. See, what kind of Jesus do you have? Is it the, is it the fluffy type? Is it the warm, fuzzy, meek, mild, gentle, wise, only ever positive, kind of long, flowy hair picture of Jesus? If that's your one-dimensional view of him, then see here, he's the Lord. He's the judge. He's the one who has the power to send people to hell. But do you have the other one dimension of Jesus? And that is, well, he is the judge. He is terrifying. And, and I don't want to come near him. Well, he is like the mother hen, longing to gather her chicks under her wing. This is the one who is gentle and humble in heart, who offers rest for your souls. And he invites us to draw near to him, the mighty one, tender as well. There's the first big thing this passage does. We, we love that through the live stream, there are many people checking out the things of Jesus who might not have otherwise come to church. See clearly that the New Testament, the Gospels are presenting Jesus as no other man as the one who is God's authority to bring judgment and to save those from out of God's judgment. Take him seriously because he takes you seriously. He takes your life seriously. There's the first big thing we see. Here's the second thing, and, and very quickly, what does this tell us about what God is like? What's the insight into the nature and character of God? Well, it's this. He's anti-superficial. He's anti-superficial. See, the attack that Jesus brings here is on the religious leaders, the impressive people of the day, the moral people of the day, the ones that people looked up to in society. But here's the thing. Jesus keeps coming down on their hypocrisy. That is, you can look the part, but God isn't interested in just looking the part. He's concerned that you are the real deal. That's a refreshing thing to hear about your God, isn't it? In a community, in a society that is so superficial and shallow, that is skin deep, that is obsessed with appearances, with sexiness, with new, with fresh, with wardrobe, with ink. God doesn't care about that stuff. God, God gets in and under and looks to the center of who we are. He's concerned with substance and integrity. And he's not some dispassionate, disinterested school teacher who just clicks copy-paste, copy-paste on every kid's report. But rather, he, he takes an interest in your life. He cares deeply about us. Which brings us to the third thing that we can always learn from Jesus. What does God want from his people? 
Who is Jesus? Your judge, your saviour. What does it teach us about God? He cares for substance. Thirdly, and let's spend some more time on this, what does God want for his people? Now, take, take um, care here because chapter 23 has a very specific historical situation. And we see that in verse 36. Jesus says something specific is going to come on this generation. He's going to expand that some more into the next chapter. We should take care before applying every word directly to our lives without thought. But what we can learn is what God wants for his people and we must be sure to apply that. Now I won't for the sake of time go through each of the seven woes. I will um, touch on a number of them and draw out particular themes that we see here about what God wants for his people. Firstly, we see that God wants for his people to be God-centred, not man-centred. See verse 1, he's talking to the crowds and disciples. These teachers of the law and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. Now, just pause there. This is why we get questions from people. How do you read the Gospels? Like phylacteries, what is that? It sounds like something you'd learn in a biology class or something. It's, what's a phylactery? It was a, um, a little wooden box that the Jews would attach to their foreheads actually has its roots all the way back in Deuteronomy 6. And it was intended from the beginning to actually be a symbol of great faith in God. Um, carrying scriptures, say, I, I trust in the Lord, I follow the Lord. But what had happened over the time is that the Jews had made these boxes bigger and bigger and bigger and shoved more and more scriptures in them. So that it actually became a symbol of, look at me, trusting God look at me look how many scriptures I'm carrying around in my head they'd become a fashion accessory Jesus goes on verse 6 they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others what is this a picture of well someone who cares so much more for the praise of people than of God Almighty. Someone who is man-centered rather than God-centered. Now, this can have a couple of flavors to it. There's the secular fear of man. That is, you're a Christian, but you're particularly careful around non-Christians because you really care what they think of you. And you don't want them to think that you're dumb, that you're stupid, that you're out there. And so you go very quiet when the latest contentious issue comes up in conversation. What's Israel Flower done now? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But Same-sex marriage. Let's... Having convictions that you won't share with people who will disagree with you demonstrates our fear over, of man over God. There's the secular version of it, but there's a religious version of it, a churchy version of it too. 
it comes to prayer time in your growth group. You've had some time in the Word, and you have some words that you want to offer to God in prayer. You want to pray, and people are praying around, and then you're going to pray except you don't because the person who's just prayed included half a theological dictionary in their prayer, and it went for five minutes. And all you have is just very basic words, and so I don't offer them because I'm not going to fit into the vibe of this churchy Christian space. We see in this chapter that God wants us to seek his approval over anyone else's. Verse 8, Jesus goes on to critique the opposite of seeking honour, and that is giving too much of it where it doesn't belong. Verse 8, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now, be careful not to read this like a Pharisee, right? And then go all literalistic and legalistic about our use of language. Jesus is not saying that a child should not call their dad father. He acknowledges that elsewhere. He's not saying that there should be no positions of leadership and authority in the church. Verse 34, he says there will be. Again, we need careful reading here. What he is saying is that we should not elevate anyone to an unhealthy and unworthy position in our lives so that they would block our view of God. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Are there people that you ascribe so much reverence to that actually you you elevate them to a place where you actually can't now hear God's voice? You actually can't look to his face in the scriptures because this person, they consume your horizon. You know you've got a person like that is because you actually disagree with them, but you can't voice it. Or actually, you won't voice it because you've just ascribed this unquestioning allegiance to this person. Jesus says, don't give that to anyone, especially religious leaders. There ought to be no one in your life that consumes the horizon so that you couldn't see God's face in his word. That's reserved only for Jesus the Messiah, verse 10. Our one instructor, our one Lord. Now, I don't actually think that is our problem here as a church, um, over-ascribing honour to your leaders, but... Feel free to disagree if you do think that is a problem. There's the first thing that we learn about what God wants in his people. God-centeredness, not man-centeredness. Here's the second. Perspective. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. 
That's a, um, that's a great word picture right there. A gnat, which is a tiny little fly, and a camel were both the smallest and largest of unclean animals in the Jewish law. And he's, you know, picture this, you're sitting there drinking your wine and this tiny little fly, ah, annoying little fly, you're fishing around for it, trying to get this thing out, and I'll go get a strainer and got it. And then you just go, go eat a camel. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. It's stupid. Jesus says, yes, that's exactly what happens when we lose perspective. The law of Moses did call for tithing, giving a tenth over to God. Now, the, the Pharisees had taken that to the extreme so that they would do it down to their herbs from the herb garden. Chop, 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 tenth to God, use the rest. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say that was wrong. What was wrong was that they didn't give the same attention to what God cared about most. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. This tells us something very important to understand about God. In his economy, there are things that he cares about more than others. It's not to say that God is disinterested in things, but it is right to say that there are things that are of less account to God. There are things that are important to God, and then there are things that are of utmost importance to God. And this is a warning for us, his followers, to keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is that? It's the gospel. It's the news of Jesus and the transformed lives that flow from it. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. See, it's not an either-or decision to care about the environment or follow Jesus. Of course not. It's crazy. We belong to the God who made this world. We are to steward it well. We are to care for it. We are to love our neighbours. We are to think of the next generation. But it's possible to care that your recycling bin is fuller than your neighbours more than you actually care for your neighbour. There are things that are important and there are things that are of utmost importance. Let me apply this to parenting for a moment. Many of us are in the thick of it. Does it matter whether our kids leave their towels on the ground despite the fact that you have been telling them for 10 years now that that's where they go, not there? Does it matter that their room is clean or not? Well, yes. These are character issues. In the case of some of my kids, they're actually health and hygiene issues too. The stuff that we find under the bed that is like three-month-old food. Does their spelling matter? Does their pronunciation matter? Well, the English teachers out there give a big amen, and I tend to agree, but Will you prioritise correcting their every misspoken word at the dinner table over taking a deep, genuine interest in their lives? Will you worry more about their cleanliness than you will about their godliness and about teaching them the things of grace in the gospel? This is a helpful reminder for me as a parent particularly as one who, who loves to have things in particular ways. 
It's not to say that they don't matter. It is to say that there are things that matter so much more. God wants his people to care about all that we should whilst keeping the big thing as the big thing. His gospel and the transformed lives that flow. Here's the third thing we see God wants for his people. It's integrity. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So clear what God wants for his people, and that is attention to our inner lives, not just our outer. Because God is anti-superficial. God is concerned about substance and integrity. He is not concerned in mere religious acts. Going to church, if you could. Watching the live stream. Just opening the Bible and reading words. He's not interested in mere moral living. Avoiding swearing and trashing TV, what he is most concerned for is relationship with us. Relationship, uh, something that happens from the centre of who we are with our God. He's concerned for our inner lives, which would then drive our behaviour. See, imagine someone that you deeply love. You've got that person in your mind, you love them deeply. And you've been away from them for some time. Maybe it's just a day, maybe it's a week, maybe it's been longer. And that person walks through the door, what happens? This involuntarily thing happens with my muscles. I smile. Muscles in my gut are engaged. I smile. What, what is that? Well, it's an outward thing, but it's been driven by an inward reality. Christianity is not about behavioural modification. It's not about working those muscles artificially so that you would smile at the right time for the right people. It's not about going through the motions, doing the right things so that God would be pleased. No, no, no. It's about an inward transformation. The Bible uses language of being given a new heart, a new mind, a new centre of who I am that would think the thoughts of God increasingly, who would long for the things of God increasingly. God is not just interested in us going through the motions and ticking the boxes. Tragically, there will be plenty of people who stand before him, Jesus, the judge on that day, and go, but I did all of these things. <laughs> you go, I wasn't interested in ticking the boxes. I was interested in you, in a relationship with you. Now, there's some nuance needed here. Some care. See, there's, 
there's some nuance needed in the way we think about the relationship between our inner life and our outer life, our behaviour, our actions and so on. See, what do you do if you don't feel like going to church, though you know that's what God wants you to do when you can, when we're opened up? What, what if you don't feel like putting the live stream on? Would it be hypocritical of you to go to church or to put the stream on since that outward action would be out of step with what I'm actually feeling? Would that be hypocritical? Would God actually care more that I be true to myself and myself is not feeling like going to church, like engaging with the things of God, so he'll be more pleased? Or what about money? You know that God loves a cheerful giver and you know what? Giving my money away isn't making me feel very happy right now, so I think I won't. Hypocrisy is not necessarily the gap between our doing and feeling. In fact, sometimes doing things that we don't feel like doing is actually just a mark of maturity. Kids, they do what they want to do. This will make me feel happy now, so I'm going to do it. This won't make me feel happy, so I won't. And a key part of growing up is learning actually to do the things that are important, whether I feel like they're fun or enjoyable or not. There can be a gap between the inner feeling and the outward action, which is actually a mark of maturity, of Christian character. You don't feel like reading your Bible and praying, but here's the thing. By actually doing the outward thing, often, not always, the, the inner life catches up. Um, you, you don't feel like reading your Bible or praying, but out of discipline, I know it's important, I do it, and, oh, God, this is good. Why don't I do this more often? You don't feel like connecting with God's people, but you come away, oh, God, I'm thankful that I did. There's some care needed that the hypocrisy that Jesus is down on here is not necessarily a gap between our inner and outer lives. But what it absolutely is a condemnation of is a gap between our public persona and our private character. What Jesus condemns most strongly is the Christian who lives a double life. The person, the Jesus follower, who is one kind of thing around church and Christians, but would we even recognise you when you go home, when you go to the workplace, when you're on the sporting field? The hypocrisy that God hates is the one that puts out for a show as a pretense around people but then actually goes off to be our true selves. You can fool us. You can fool your leaders. You can fool your people in your growth group. You can even fool yourself. We'll come to that in a moment. But you cannot fool God. And he is after integrity between our inner life, our outward action, between who we are out in public and when the cameras are off. Here's the fourth and final thing that we see that God really cares for in his people, and it's self-awareness. Verse 29, 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You see what they're saying? Okay, our ancestors, oh, they might have blown it. They might have been some pretty evil dudes. But that's not us. We've arrived. We've learned. We're enlightened. And I wonder if that sounds familiar to you in our day. You know, those colonial ancestors of ours, they should be scrubbed from history. What wicked people. But us, we've arrived. We're enlightened. History will look back on us and applaud everything that we do. But verse 31, Jesus says, So you testify against yourselves. In saying that, in saying that we are much better than our ancestors, you're actually condemning yourself. You are testifying that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. What's he saying there? He actually says, not only are you in the line of your ancestors who did kill the prophets that God sent, you're going to go one better than them. You're going to kill God himself. The Son of God. The ones who sat in Moses' seat will kill the prophet that Moses had spoken of. Deuteronomy 18. I reckon this thought has got to be one of the most terrifying ones, and that is self-delusion. Don't you reckon, if you think about all the things that are most terrifying, self-delusion has got to be one of the highest ones. That you can actually be in the wrong and maybe even knowingly, I know I'm in the wrong and I'm going to lie about it or I'm going to tell myself and, and justify myself. I'm going to come up with arguments that say, actually, I'm not in the wrong, I'm in the right. And you do that for long enough that you actually come to believe your own lies so that very sincerely you believe yourself to be righteous. Isn't that one of the most terrifying thoughts imaginable? It's not like I'm continually going through life knowing that I'm in the wrong, but just, but actually I'm righteous because I've worked hard to convince myself of that. What do you reckon you would have done if you were part of this crowd that Jesus was speaking to? You know, just a few days earlier, you'd seen this guy from the sticks, Galilee, you know, a guy from nowhere just waltz into the capital city, into the temple of God himself with a whip and clear it out. If you'd seen this man come in and attack your religious leaders, speak such harsh words to them uh, to make them look like fools, what do you think you would have done if you were in this crowd? I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have added my cry to that of crucify him. Just two or three days later. Crucify him. Who does he think he is? And to insist that you would have done otherwise would reveal your lack of self-awareness into your own nature. 
into the lineage from which you come, which has repeated the same old sin in every generation. I might be dressed up slightly differently, but we are sinners nonetheless. What is the medicine to self-deception? To actually believing that I'm okay when actually I'm not? Well, the medicine is the death of that man who was crucified. It's the gospel. It's the truth that God sent his son to die in the place of sinners for them. Whilst they were still sinners. It's the truth that God did the most amazing thing for you. The the biggest act of love imaginable. Not because you are half decent. Not because you are respectable. But because he is a God of mercy. And God sent his son to come and die on a cross. So that by trusting in him we might be forgiven fully. The wretches that we are. See, if you are a follower of God, you came into that relationship by grace. Not because of anything impressive about you. And you remain in that relationship by grace. You will come to the finish line to see his face, to be welcomed into his arms by grace. Which means this, we can be honest about ourselves. We actually can ask those questions, those probing questions of ourselves. We don't have to delude ourselves. We don't have to work so hard to try and pretend that we are righteous and just so that God will love us. He loved us when we were at our worst. And there is nothing that we can do that will change that if we would keep looking to Jesus as Saviour. The medicine to self-delusion to thinking that we're better than anyone else, than those who have come before us, is the gospel. Where God says, Jez, I love you. You can face who you truly are. You can repent of that sin again. And I will forgive you because I love you. And that love will endure. Friends, the gospel... The news of this Jesus, there's none like it. This is a sobering passage because we see that Jesus is not to be taken lightly. He is God's divine judge. He is the most important person that you will ever relate to. What are you doing with him? But he's also the saviour who came to gather sinners back to God through forgiveness. Forgiveness that would then actually give us new hearts and transform us so that increasingly we would be people who live for the praise of God, no one else. Who would not obsess over minutiae but would hold on to the big things which are God's big things. Who would increasingly have an integrity in our relationship with God so that our inner life is reflected in our outer life. That who we are in public is who we truly are in private and that we would be a people who remain sensitive to the fact that we are a work in progress, that we have not arrived, but God still loves me. And as I look to a saviour, there is great comfort in that. Let me pray for us.
Father, what a sobering part of the Bible where we see that all is not right with the world. Everything won't just be okay, but you have come to it and pronounced judgment on it, particularly over those who have used religion to block you and to block others. And so we, we hear these words soberly, and we ask that we would, and we ask, please, that we would flee to Jesus, the Saviour, and take great comfort that in him you delight to gather us close to your side and that you really want us to live in a particular way and, and we confess, Lord, that there is hypocrisy in our lives. To say otherwise would be hypocritical. And so we ask, please, for your forgiveness again. For those, Father, who are really struggling with a big double life. Lord, please work powerfully to bring repentance uh, with, with great comfort that as they return to you, the God of grace, there is forgiveness. Uh, and Father, please, for all of us, might you continue to make us people who are shaped to be people who love justice, mercy, faithfulness, so that your name might be honoured through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.